Please turn with me to Isaiah 45 as we continue our study in the book of Isaiah. I know it's been a couple of weeks since you guys were in Isaiah. It's been a couple of weeks since I've been in Isaiah. Thank you for the time that we had off together as a family. It was really nice to be able to just kind of rest and kick back uh, for a couple of weeks. We really, really enjoyed it. It was nice to be together, but it's also now nice to be back together with you. And so as we come together to hear God's word, let's first go to him and pray and ask for his help with it. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that you would help us with it because we are a people who, again, we have a difficult time understanding the simple, plain things of scripture. You are an infinite God and we are but very finite. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us as we open your word, that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive it, to be changed by it, that we would be transformed by the renewing of our mind, that we would be convicted of the sin that it lays bare, and that we would repent and return to you. And we pray these things in your holy name. Amen. So we're going to be in verses 14 through 25. We're looking at the last part of Isaiah 45 today. As I read through this, it reminded me of, well, something that happened this week, actually. I don't guess it happened this week, but it, I was first alerted to it this week. Last year, about this time, I made a planter box for Emily. And so we put it out on our back deck, and it was just, you know, there to grow whatever we wanted to grow in it. It's mostly been a lot of flowers and herbs. But this year we had a surprise guest in our planter bed. It was this fungus called a wood ear fungus. And it grew in one of the wells and a little bit in one of the other ones. And it was this really big mass. And it looked pretty much like it says it does. It looked like an ear. But it wasn't made out of wood. It grew out of the wood. And it gets its name because, again, it looks like this ear. It has some other names, too, that were pretty interesting. It's primarily associated with a species of plant called an elder, which is where elderberries come from. You may be familiar with elderberries. We have them around here. They kind of grow on, like, uh, like edges of forests and things, those really bright purple berries that stain everything and that are poisonous if you eat them. But here's the thing. We don't have any elderberries in that box. We didn't plant elderberries. Um, yet they were there. The only thing I can figure out is that either they were in the plywood that I used to make the dividers, like this, those spores somehow snuck in and like hid in the glue. The plywood's kind of starting to separate a little bit just from the elements. And so maybe they had a chance to grow. That's kind of what I thought. Or maybe... They were in some of the potting soil filler that gets used when they make the potting soil. Whatever it is, those little tiny microscopic spores that that fungus comes from, they grew up and they made lots of wood ear, which apparently in some cultures is like a staple kind of food source. They cut it up and put it in things. I don't think ours is edible anymore. I looked at it and it's like more not so nice looking anymore. But it was really nice for there at a time. So and you're probably thinking, what does this have to do with Isaiah 45? 
Well, in our passage today, Isaiah speaks of God as being hidden. And we have to be careful with this. Because our tendency is to really like hidden things. Because they can be secret. And they can be completely personal. And we alone are the only ones that really know what they are. So we kind of interpret them ourselves. And a lot of heresy starts this way. A lot of bad practices start this way. So we're going to look at what it means that God has hidden himself at times. And we'll see how that idea really rounds out a lot of the themes we've been looking looking at in the previous chapters. This is a very important idea for us because we tend to only understand the things that are right in front of our faces that are very plain. We even have a hard time understanding the plain things. And if we understand God and you look at God's works, he's rarely right in front of us so that we can understand totally what it is that he's doing. And so this is helpful for us because as we've said over the last few weeks, what we want to do is we want to create a God that we can fashion for ourselves, that we can completely understand, that we can even control to some measure. But instead what we have is a God that is beyond our understanding, yet who became like us, became one of us, that he might save his people. Of course, this points directly to our Lord Jesus. And so as we consider this passage, we'll consider three main ideas in the passage. The conquering God, the hidden God, and then lastly, the Savior God. And so with that, let's look together at the text, Isaiah 45, starting at verse 14, reading through verse 25. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Isaiah 45, starting at verse 14. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sebians, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other God besides him. Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded, the makers of idols that go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by God the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not created empty, but he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in the land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come, draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, there is no other. 
by myself I have sworn from my mouth or from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return to me every knee shall bow every tongue shall swear allegiance only in the Lord it shall be said of me are righteousness and strength to him shall come and be a, to him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him in the Lord, all offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So again, it's been a few weeks since we've been in the book of Isaiah. And I think it's helpful for us to kind of recap this a lot. Because as we get deep into this book, we might, t- we might kind of lose its historical moorings. And so, again, remember, the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes of Israel were taken over by Assyria. The southern kingdom, which is usually referred to as Judah in the text, was almost destroyed, but the Lord himself intervened. There was much rejoicing, but the Lord made sure that they understood that their time, Judah, their time was coming. Because of their repeated idolatry, their turning away from the Lord, he was going to raise up Babylon and he was going to defeat them, or Babylon was going to defeat them and take their leaders away into exile. Yet even with all that bad news, there was a promise that has been attached. And that's what we've been looking at the last couple of weeks. The Lord is also going to raise up a man named Cyrus, who will be set there 70 years or so after the exile. And Cyrus is going to deliver the people of Judah that they could come back into Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and so forth. And so in 44 and 45, we have been introduced to this person named Cyrus. And again, as Isaiah writes these words, this person, Cyrus, won't be born for another 150 plus years. And he is just a kind of savior for the people. Yet... Ultimately, this points to the one true Savior, God himself, who is the Savior of his people, who will become man and who will live among his people and he will give his life as a ransom for many. I know that seems like a lot, but again, it's important for us to kind of look back at these things, understand where we are historically as we as we read through this book. Understanding the, this historical context is key to understanding all of these prophets that are in the Old Testament, I think one of the reasons that people have so much trouble with them is that they don't want to take the time to understand the history surrounding them. They want to just kind of see them in 21st century, and that doesn't really work so much. So our text closes up this, this current theme, helping us to see God as Savior of His people, which we desperately need to understand in our own world all the time. And so that brings me to the first point, the conquering God. Look with me again at verse 14. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt, the merchandise of Cush, and the Sebians, men of stature, shall come over to you, and they shall be yours. And they will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you. There is no other God besides him. Remember, we were just introduced to this person named Cyrus. He was going to be a conqueror. But also, just remember and understand, when it comes to Cyrus's conquering skills, go back to 45 verse 1 and understand where his conquering skills come from. Thus says the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand 
I have grasped to subdue the nations. And so what is Cyrus doing? He's just simply doing the work of the Lord. The Lord grabbed him by the hand and used him as a tool to conquer the nations. It's not as if Cyrus rested on his own power. From his perspective, I'm sure he thought he was something pretty special. If you read about Cyrus, that's exactly the case. It wasn't like he was some uh, humble conqueror. But from the perspective of God, he was merely a tool to be created, used, and discarded for his own purposes. As far as we know, Cyrus remained a pagan. So it's not as if God chose a good man to do his work. He didn't envision Cyrus being this awesome follower of God that he was going to use to do his work because there are no awesome followers of God. There are no good men. Only a good God that does as he pleases. And so in verse 14, we read that these great nations are going to come and bow down to Judah. And notice what they're bringing. They're bringing all their wealth. They're bringing all their distinctiveness. Their possessions, we read of, of Cush, their merchandise, and even the Sebians, the, the men of stature, they're just bringing their, their tallness as their gift. And it might be strange to read about these nations coming to bow before Judah, but think of this in a broader sense. They aren't bowing down to Judah as their new rulers. It's not as if Judah, the nation of Judah, is going to be the new rulers of Egypt and all these other places but more of a recognition that they worship the one true God before, as they say, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. This should make you think of the numerous times in Scripture that we see this very thing happening. It makes me think of the book of Acts. When Peter finished his sermon, how many different nations were represented there? Well, the very beginning of Acts 2, you can kind of read that. There were people from all over the place that were came together into this one place to hear the word of God preached. And what did they do at the close of Peter's sermon? How can we be saved? Was their question. When Philip met the Ethiopian, which is the same as Cush here in this passage, the Ethiopian wanted to know how to be saved. When the nations of the world see the one true God, they're going to do one or two things. They're either going to raise up their weapons in futility or they're going to throw down their arms and surrender. Either way, they're going to bow the knee at the end. So this isn't pointing to a future time when all the nations will be captive of the nation of Israel. That's not what this is talking about at all. Rather, it's a metaphor for the saving word of God who sends his word to the furthest reaches of the world, brings a people to himself. And not only that, he sends out witnesses. Alluded to several times in the preceding verses that we've read through the previous chapters that we are his witnesses to share the good news. We read this again when Jesus comes. What did he tell us to do? Go to all the earth, make disciples, baptize them, teach them all that I have commanded, teach them to obey my commandments. We aren't to do this with a physical sword. We're not physically going out and conquering as Christians, but we are doing so with the very word of God. And this idea is important in coming verses. It's important for us to understand what's going on in the world. We look around the world, maybe easy for us to look around and say, I don't have any idea what's going on. And yeah, we probably do because, you know, we're not omniscient. God's ultimate plan, though, 
which he's made plain from the beginning all the way back in Genesis, and he continues to make plain all throughout the book, is that he has a plan, that he has a people for himself, and he has a plan to save those people wherever they are. He plans to save them. He plans to sanctify them. He plans to glorify them. And while we may not always understand his ways, we have to trust that that ultimate plan has not changed. It's not for us to question his methods, but rather to trust in him and all that he does. And that brings us to the next point, the hidden God. And so take all this together. Everything that Isaiah has talked about, this whole idea of Cyrus coming in, the idea of the Babylonians coming in, even further back where the Assyrians have taken over the northern kingdom, all these things. And read verse 15. Truly, this is Isaiah speaking here, truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. Who is that? The makers of idols. They go in together in confusion. But Israel, those people that you've called your own, Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. So here Isaiah is basically interjecting his own words. It's almost as if Isaiah is kind of taking in all this business that we've talked about so far about Babylon, about Cyrus, about the people of God being called from all the nations of the world, being called in. It's almost kind of like he's admitting, I can't possibly wrap my head around all the things that you're doing, Lord. I can't possibly do it. So it's the right conclusion because we can't either. We can't possibly wrap our head around all the things that he's doing. It's the right conclusion to say, surely you are God who hides himself. Most of the time, we're still stuck kind of thinking that we're the standard of excellence, right? We can't understand why everyone isn't just like us. The fact that God would have a people for himself from among the idolatrous nations of the world is absolutely outlandish. That he would choose an idol factory like you and I is just weird, preposterous that he would even do something like that. And so we can't possibly wrap our heads around this. And so, again, Isaiah's conclusion is, you are a God who hides himself. Now, we obviously can't understand this as God is somehow sneaking around, leaving scant evidence of himself as he does things. I mean, just look outside. We see his glory. It was raining earlier this morning. That doesn't just happen. Well, the unbeliever might say, well, science. And then I would say, why science? Ultimately, it points to God, that there is a creator that holds all of this stuff together. All of it. And so we see his evidence all over the place. He's left evidence in his people as well. He's left evidence here in this congregation, has he not? As we've watched this congregation grow and thrive and, and grow in their understanding. It's a work of God. So that, so when Isaiah says, a God who hides himself, we should understand this as saying that God doesn't always explain himself. In fact, most of the time he just doesn't. Or does he have to? It's not like he owes us an explanation for what he's doing. His ultimate plan is plain. Verse 16 and 17. This is his ultimate plan. All of them put to shame and confounded, the makers of idols. They go in confusion together, but Israel is saved by the Lord. The people of God are saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. 
They shall not be put to, con- put to shame or confounded to all eternity. Is it because Israel's good? No. We've read the rest of the book. We know they're not. But it's because God is good. That's why. You can read about this in lots of places throughout the scriptures. First Peter 2 talks about this. That, that to the believer, Jesus is this precious stone. He is this precious cornerstone of all that we have. But to the unbeliever, what is he? He's a rock of stumbling. That same precious thing to me is a rock of stumbling to the unbeliever. And so maybe the biggest thing that we struggle with when it comes to this as a believer is the idea that God, the one true God, is not doing things according to our plan. And he really doesn't ever. I talk to high school students quite a bit because I'm a high school teacher. And I talk to them quite a bit about life. We talk, I mean, of course, I teach biology, but I, we talk about all kinds of other things. And ultimately, they'll end up telling me about their plan, right? Every student has a plan, or at least most of them do. They want to go to this school. They want to have this major. They want to have this job, right? And if you'd have talked to me when I was a junior in high school, I was going to wash you. I was going to be major in pharmacy, and I was going to be a pharmacist. Funny. I started Murray State with a journalism degree. I don't have any actual data, but I imagine the ones who actually follow that 18-year-old plan that they've made for themselves is pretty small. Is it because kids are fickle? Sometimes. It's also just because things happen. Life happens. I told mom I wanted to go to Washington University. She said, how much? I told her, and she, she laughed. I didn't know. I just didn't know. I couldn't predict that. I didn't know how much, I didn't know what money was really when I was that age. I mean, I worked, but I only bought like video games. You know, I didn't have to pay for real things. We can't predict the future either. Life, and we understand this, the older you get, the more you understand this. Life doesn't just pitch underhanded lobs to us all the time. Sometimes we get curveballs. Sometimes we get fastballs to the head. It's not easy. It's not like it's it's and it's this it's not just this way with high school students, it's like this way with all of us, right? We all like comfort and stability, we all like predictability, we all like ease. Yet we aren't guaranteed any of those things. Life can change in a moment. And there's not a moment, there's not a single moment that has ever been or ever will be since the first moment happened and was created by God, where he said Oh no, how did that happen? Can you imagine worshiping a God that would ever say that? Just because His plans are mostly hidden to us, it doesn't mean that they aren't His plans. Now we have to be careful here, because there's much, much ink spilled on the topic of God's hidden will. And that how we can somehow, as finite creatures, can figure it out. For some groups, the best way to figure it out is just to give the pastor a lot of money so he can buy a private jet. For others, it's about adhering to maybe certain meditative practices. You know, get into some sort of, some sort of other thing. I don't even know what you call it. Or a certain way to pray. And then you can start to hear the voice of the Lord. For others, it's really, for most, honestly, it's really just about trusting their feelings. Well, I just, 
feel like God is doing this or, or saying that. I don't know about you, but I can't trust my feelings to do the most mundane of tasks. I can't even watch a commercial sometimes without getting a little bit emotional. Thinking about those people and that situation that's not even real. And I'm like, oh, what was, that was too much. It's worse as I've gotten older. I just, I'm like, just completely torn up about commercials on YouTube. And I'm like, this is not right. And so why can I trust my feelings then to discern and understand and hear the sovereign God of the universe? That's just crazy. I cannot trust my feelings to ascertain the perfect, eternal, and unchangeable will of the sovereign creator of the universe. And I think I can speak for all of us. Our feelings aren't up to the task, and so we shouldn't trust them. Instead, what do we trust? Verse 17. But Israel is saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You, Israel, shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. This is God saying this to all eternity as a thing I can't even fathom. When does he plan on breaking this promise? He doesn't. Why can I trust that? He said it. I didn't have to feel it. I just read it. It's true. And that brings me to the last point, the Savior God. Look with me at verses 18 and 19 again. And I love this because this kind of, again, this is really just fires us up on understanding the true things about God. Verse 18, for thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God. I love the parenthetical note there. Who formed the earth and made it, he established it. He did not create it empty, but he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. These two verses, particularly verse 19, really affected me this week. Because first he kind of announces himself as creator. And he says, I did not speak in darkness. or did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. Is he all of a sudden contradicting himself? Or is he contradicting what Isaiah says about him where Isaiah says, you are a hidden God. Of course he doesn't contradict himself because the Lord can't do that. But he's reminding us that the main things are super, super plain. The details may not always be plain. But his redemptive plan has been known since the foundations of the earth. He spoke his redemptive plan to literally the first two people that ever lived. Adam and Eve heard it. They heard that he, that one that is promised, was going to step on the hill or stomp the hill of the serpent. His redemptive plan has been throughout all of the scriptures. We could go throughout all the Bible. And read this assurance. I think of Ephesians 1 in particular. When I think of that. You can go to Psalm 111. What we read responsively today. That we read together. Another passage that I really really like. That helps me understand this idea of. I did not speak secret in a land of darkness. Is John 1. Turn with me to John chapter 1 real quick. So I want to read this, it's a very familiar passage to us, but I want to read this in this understanding of God saying, I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. 
So having that ringing in our ears, let's read John 1. Look at it. Verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Verse 5, look at this. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. What is that light? Who is this talking about? It's talking about our Savior Jesus. Verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming to the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But, thankfully, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Incredible. It seems like John was a student of Isaiah. It seems like he was a student of the Savior that Isaiah prophesied as well. It's not as if the world didn't see the light. They could not see the light. The light shined in the darkness. The darkness could not overcome it. It's not that as if they couldn't see the light. Of course they saw it. They just rejected it. But for those who didn't, to those who believe, he's given the right to be called children of God. And so what does God, through the prophet, say to the children of, of God here? I love this. This is what really got me. I do not speak in secret in the land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. He didn't say to us, hey, seek after me, but it's all going to be in vain because your life is going to be hard and it's going to seem like I don't care. He didn't say that to us. It's not in vain. It's the exact opposite thing. What did he tell us to do? Seek after him. Why? Because I, the Lord, speak truth. I declare what is right. And notice, this isn't something that we did. It's not as if, you know, when he says he's going to save Israel, it's not because Israel finally figured it out. This is 150 years before Babylon is going to come in and sack the city of Jerusalem and take the, take the leaders away because they're idolatrous. It's not as if one day, Israel, you're going to finally get this and then I'm going to come and I'm going to save you. Read the Gospels. They didn't figure it out then. They hated Jesus when he walked among them. It's not as if we're going to somehow figure it out. And that's why we love this truth. And what is true? What is right? Verses 22 through 25. Look with me again. What does he call us to do? Turn to me and be saved for all, all the ends of the earth. For I am God. There is no other. By myself I have sworn. From the mouth has gone out. For my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord shall it be said of me, our righteousness and strength to him shall come and be ashamed. 
all who were incensed against him in the Lord, in the Lord, all offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. He is God. There is no other. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will swear allegiance. The Lord alone will save his people. He will justify them and in him they will be glorified. This isn't a work that they did. The whole rest of the book. Keep reading. We read it again in Romans this morning. We've read it. We've studied it in Romans. We've studied it in Mark. We've studied it in everything that we've studied. This isn't something we've done. And this isn't our ability to justify ourselves. In fact, it's the opposite. It's our inability to justify ourselves. And we love to glorify ourselves, do we not? But it's like a garbage dump trying to masquerade itself as a springtime meadow. It just doesn't work. When someone looks at you and thinks glorious, that's not true. They can't look at my life and think glorious unless they see Christ. That's the only way they can look at me and say glorious. Because who is it that gives me justification? Who is it that glorifies me and you? It's Christ alone. Only through the work of Jesus Christ can the people of God be justified. We are justified because God imputed to us the very righteousness of Christ. Christ took his sin, took my sin, your sin upon himself, and I now have the righteousness of Christ. And not only this, and in this, not only do we await this promise of glory, we look forward to the day that one day we'll be with him and be glorified in him. But we get to experience a small bit of this today as he sanctifies us, as he makes us more and more to be like his son, Jesus. This is what is true. This is what is right. Whether or not we can understand the happenings and the circumstances of our lives is really unimportant. What we do understand is that Jesus Christ came to save his people from their sins. And he did just that. And I can rest upon that promise. And if you're in Jesus Christ today, what we should then do is run to him. Repent of our lack of trust in those times that we think, well, God, if you would just help me understand what you're doing, then I would be able to have more faith. No, he's told us what he's doing. He's bringing his people home one day. That's all I need to know. That's all, all the other things. It would be great if I could know them, but honestly, I wouldn't be able to understand them if I did. I'm going to understand this one truth that in Jesus Christ, I can rest. And if you're an unbeliever here today, understand this. There isn't another plan. This is the one. There's no other God. How many times do you say this as we've been in this text today? It's not as if there's this other God who has another option for you. There is one God and his son is Jesus Christ. And there is no other way to the father except through him. Call upon the name of Jesus Christ and be saved today. In conclusion, brothers and sisters in Christ, like that mushroom in a planter box, sometimes things are just going to spring up and it's going to seem random. But they come from a loving God, an absolutely loving God. And we don't have to understand him. He doesn't owe us that explanation. But over and over, he has explained one thing to us is that he has a people for himself and he intends to bring them home one day. And that we should trust in that word. 
that we should rest in Jesus Christ today. Not only that, brothers and sisters, but share that hope with a dying world. Let's go to him in prayer. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to you, we come to you as a people who on our best days really struggles with this plain truth. On our worst days, we have concocted some other idol that we think is better than you. And so, Lord, we pray, please break us of our idolatry, convict us of our sin, lead us to you that we might follow you and give you glory. Not only that, Lord, use us to be your witnesses to a lost and dying world that people will call upon the name of Jesus and be saved, that you might be glorified in all the earth. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.